All right, so we, we are in First uh, Thessalonians, still working through these two letters. Um, we'll be in this until just before Christmas. We'll, I think we'll have a couple weeks before Christmas, that we'll, so I'll wrap up, and then we'll do two weeks on, on Christmas as our sermon. Um, at least that's the game plan for now, unless something changes here. But uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, as we saw last week, is the turning point in the letter from where Paul is just encouraging this church. Um, in chapters 1 through 3, he's just expressing his gratitude for them, for how the Lord has worked in their lives, uh, what he is seeing as the gospel fruit of their lives as they've believed in Jesus, have trusted him through really difficult situations and circumstances that they've stayed faithful to Christ, even in Paul's absence. All of that is the first three chapters. And then chapter four, he begins to try and get this church to understand some of the things or remember some of the things that they have been taught and are called to. And what, what I've been saying in kind of passing over the last couple of weeks is uh, that Christians are called to be countercultural, right? That that's our call. Like we're not called to just assimilate fully into what everyone else is doing, how everyone else is living. We are called to a different way of life. When, when the world zigs one way, we should zag the other way, we, right? We should go against the current of the culture, um, when the world is crazy, as it is often, we should have gospel-driven sanity in our lives. When the world feels hopeless, we should be the most hopeful, right? When the world is hateful, we should be loving. Uh, when the world is merciless, we should show mercy. All of these things are, are true in the New Testament. They are shown and displayed to us. When, when we see the craziness of everything around us, we should have uh, our feet firmly planted on Jesus as the solid rock. And so that's really what we're seeing Paul do in these chapters, is in these last couple chapters of 1 Thessalonians in particular. He's re- helping this church reorient in a, in a very godless culture, in a very godless society, in a society that was very hostile to Jesus. This church is thriving and growing and maturing, and he wants them to just continue to press into that and he's reminding them of the things that they need uh, to do in order to live that countercultural way. And so he started this at the beginning, the first eight verses of chapter four, by talking about how we live differently from the rest of the world in regards to our sexuality. And, and we talked through that issue. Now today, he's going to turn for just a few verses uh, towards really another major issue that all of us are called to and to remind us of what uh, we should be, how we should be living ultimately, kind of what's the big picture of life in Christ and what should we be pursuing as we live in Christ in this world. And so let me just read these verses. We're only looking at three or four verses today, so I'll get them all in front of us. It's a pretty short section, just a quick paragraph. And then we'll back up and we'll talk about what we're seeing here. So First Thessalonians 4, verse 9 through 12 says this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout all of Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more, and, we, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders 
and be dependent on no one. This is what Paul is calling this church to, and it is incredibly simple, but it's also incredibly radical. It is totally countercultural. Uh, he's calling them to operate generally in two ways. And here's the two ways, in love and in simplicity of life. So he's calling them to. He's calling them to, those are the two things that come out of this one little paragraph, is to love one another and to live simple lives. And, and so what we're called to as Christians is not complicated. We're called to simple living of loving Jesus, loving people, and helping people love Jesus. That's what we're called to. This is, we see this actually in, in the text very clearly. Right? We see that we are to love one another and we're called to love those who don't know Jesus so that they would know Jesus. We see both of those things in this text and that flows from uh, a, a love that we have for Jesus through his love for us. So this is not a real complicated passage. It's a pretty simple passage. It's a short passage. So we, but we need to unpack what this looks like. Right. What, what we need to do is be concerned primarily with a simple life, a quiet life of loving others so that they would love Jesus. But how do we do that? Like there's not a lot of direct instruction here. It's more Paul's reinforcing something that he had evidently already talked to them about. Right. He said that um, he told them uh, in the end of verse 11, he says, as we instructed you to aspire to live these, this kind of life. We've, he's already talked through this with them at, in the short time he was there in Thessalonica, but he's reinforcing it. He's reminding them of what they know and he's encouraging them to stay in it. But I think fundamentally what this means is that to be in God's will, to be, and we, as Christians, we all want to be living within the will of God, Right? But we don't, what we don't need is some big dramatic sign or calling to know what we should do with our lives. We don't need some, some big moment to hit us over the head. All we really need is to listen to the word of God and to, to do that which it calls us to do, which is to love and to live in simplicity. And if we're doing those two things, we're actually within the will of God. And, and that's what we want to, to do. So let's unpack both of these things. First, we want to unpack what love means. And it's interesting in this passage that Paul doesn't actually define it. He doesn't really explain it. He simply reinforces that they are doing this really well in Thessalonica. He's encouraging them with this, with this reality. You guys don't need anyone to tell you how to love people. You're doing that really well. And that's interesting uh, in and of itself, that this church, which had really been um, without the Apostle Paul's lengthy stay, they didn't, they didn't really need him to, to lead them here. Um, they were taught by God these things, that the Holy Spirit had pre impressed upon this church the need to love one another. And Timothy, as he reports back to Paul, as we know that this letter was written because of Paul, uh, Timothy's report from the Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonians, uh, Paul's just hearing what's going on there and he's just encouraging them, man, you are 
killing it at this. You, you are loving people really well. He says in verse nine, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you because you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And that is indeed what you're doing and are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Macedonia would have been the region of uh, geogra- geographic region in which Thessalonica was sort of the primary hub or city within that. And so uh, like you could, Macedonia would be kind of similar to what we'd say with the North, uh, Northwoods or Northern Wisconsin, right? And there's, there are certain cities that are kind of the hubs there, but Thessalonica would have been the, kind of the center of Macedonia. And they're just loving the churches and the Christians throughout all of this region, and they're doing it really well. So the only thing Paul has to do to instruct them is just keep doing this more and more. We urge you brothers to do this more and more. Now, they did not need help uh, loving people. Paul didn't need to give them instructions. But thankfully for us, for those of us who are sitting here perhaps thinking, okay, but do, do we love people well? Do we know what we're doing? Are, are we actually doing this? I, I do think we, we are doing very well here as a church. Um, but I, I'm not saying that to say that there's not room for improvement or growth. Of course, all of us have to fight the impulse of selfishness and fight the impulse of being uh, uh, unloving towards, towards those that are hard to love, right? We, we all need to grow in this. But I think we're doing pretty well all in all. This church was obviously doing so well, Paul had no need to explain to them how to love people. He just said, you love people really well. Keep going, keep doing this. But I do think it's important to know that we, we have more than just First Thessalonians in our Bibles. Um, and there are churches that Paul had ministry in and wrote to, and not just Paul, but also the Apostle John and the Apostle Peter, um, that had, had to explain a little bit more in detail what it means to love. And we know this first and foremost, that love is the primary characteristic for a Christian. Jesus said this as he was preparing to uh, go to the cross, as he's spending his last moments with his disciples. He tells them in John 13, I believe it is, that by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus establishes this reality that this is the thing, this is the characteristic that will set you apart from from those who don't follow me. What it means to follow me, he says, is to love one another. It is interestingly not our doctrine. It is not our politics. It is is not anything that we can muster from our own uh, philosophies or intellect, but it's our love that Jesus says defines us. That doesn't mean that doctrine or politics are unimportant altogether. They're not. We don't believe that's true, right? They have impact in the world. They obviously, doctrine matters deeply. Believing rightly matters. Those, I'm not saying that that is unimportant, but what I'm saying is, is that's not what Jesus defines as the ultimate characteristic of his disciples. Love is. Love is. And it's interesting that if you just do a very brief word study of the New Testament, every single letter written to every church, so from Romans to the end of uh, Third John, every single letter of the New Testament talks about love for one another in some context or other. Everyone. So what that means is that we need to hear this, and we need to hear it again and again. 
we, we shouldn't assume we're just doing amazing here. We should actually look at what the New Testament tells us about love and, and go towards it. So while this passage that we're looking at today doesn't give us any specifics on how to love one another, the New Testament as a whole does. And there's one particular church that I think we can learn from. And there's a church in uh, a city called Corinth, and he, Paul wrote two letters to this church as well. And in 1 Corinthians, he spends an entire chapter defining love because this church in Corinth obviously needed a lot more help loving people than Thessalonica did. The church in Thessalonica was doing really well. Paul could just have a quick paragraph and go, really just a couple sentences, and go, that's awesome. You guys keep going with what you're doing. In Corinth, he needed to write like an entire letter basically on how to love people um, because that church was struggling with it. So what we can learn from this is that there are seasons and there are times when we need to hone in more on this than others. But I think because this is the topic in front of us, we should take the opportunity to talk about what love is and how it's defined. And 1 Corinthians 13 shows us what it is and what it is not. This is a passage that's so often read or taught at, at weddings that it, it almost becomes so familiar to us that we kind of gloss over. But what Paul does in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is he walks us through what is and is not love. And he shows us those things. And so I just, let's just walk through it. It's not real long, but it'll help us understand what Paul means when he talks to this church that we're looking at in Thessalonica and telling them to keep loving. He's, he's obviously saying, you're doing really well in these things because this is what love is. So if we pick it up in verse 4 of chapter 13, he says this, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So those characteristics, many of them, he's defining love by what it's not. He starts with a couple of things that it is, and then he tells us a lot of things that it's not. And by implication, we can get a well-rounded picture of what gospel-driven, Christ-centered love looks like. It says that love is patient. What that means is that it's long-suffering. Love is not something that runs out on people quickly. It sticks with people. It, it is forbearing. Well, he says love is kind. That is, it is merciful. It is compassionate. Love looks at another person and says, this person needs my help and care, and I'm going to meet that through, through love. He says love does not envy. Envy is interesting because it's, it's connected to covetousness, right? Coveting is uh, uh, one of the Ten Commandments. The Tenth Commandment tells us not to covet. And so a co to covet is to want what someone else has um, and not to be content with what we have been given. But envy is that with a different twist on it. Envy is actually anger over what someone else has. To, to be loving means we do not 
look at others with anger because they have what we do not. In Corinth, Paul says in chapter 3 of uh, the first letter there that, that there is jealousy and strife among this church. But love, in contrast, is not envious. We're not jealous of one another if we're loving. He then says that love does not boast. That word boast is a word uh, in in Greek. Obviously, uh, the New Testament was written in the Greek language. We have it in English because that's what we speak, and thank goodness we do. Um, But the word boast comes from a word that is translated as, um, or that means to heap praise on oneself. So love does not heap praise on oneself. Love looks outward, not inward. Uh, The word that is translated boast uh, could also mean a braggart or a windbag. I think that's helpful. Love is not arrogant, he goes on to say. That's translated from a word that means to cause, to have an exaggerated self-conception or to puff up or to make proud. This describes some of the Corinthians. There was a lot of pride in this church uh, that Paul was trying to help them walk through. And what we see love does is it doesn't associate with just the biggest and the best among us, but it actually associates with the lowly, those who are not wise in their own sight, right? That's what love is. Love is not arrogant. It's not about heaping praise on ourselves or to have some self-conception that is exaggerated. He goes on to say that love is not rude, which means it's not indecent. It's not, um, it's not looking at uh, people through an impure lens. Love does not insist on its own way. So it looks to the interests of others. It lives in harmony with others. As much as possible, it compels us to live peaceably with, with everyone. Love does not insist on its own way. We don't have to just dig our heels in. Sometimes we can let others have a win. Love is not irritable, which means that a minor perceived wrong done to us should not trigger some emotional outburst of anger. Love is not resentful. In the Greek, it means it does not count the evil. You're not keeping track of all the things that are wrong or have been done to you. We're not, we, as much as I love Seinfeld, I just laugh at the the episode about Festivus, right? Because Festivus is this holiday that George Costanza's dad creates and it's the entire thing is built around remembering all the wrongs that have been done to you that year. And, I, and I, I have so much impulse in me to, to lean into that, right? And I think many of us do. But to, for love to not be resentful means we're not counting the wrongs. We, we strive to get along with others, not to get even with others. This is a kind of a negative way of stating the same thing that he said earlier, that love is patient, He goes on to say that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. So love does not love what is evil, but hates what is evil. That we actually love what is good. Love rejoices with the truth. It holds fast to what is good. 
we rejoice in what is good and right. And then there's a, the ending of this. He goes into these things that verse seven and says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Uh, meaning that love um, really just bears with people, puts, puts up with hard things for the good of the, uh, the other. It believes all things, meaning that it doesn't assume the worst, but assumes the best. It hopes all things. It, it clings to Christ as, a, as our anchor for, for our hope, and it endures all things. We can continue walking forward as we should in love because Christ and his power through his spirit empowers us for that. So as we, as we look at this description of love, we're seeing obviously areas in our lives where we don't measure up and we aren't always loving and, and our natural impulse is not to do these things. But it's, it's really a call to be reminded of the fact that this, this list that Paul lays out as the definition of love is perfectly embodied in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. If you walk through each of those things that we just did, we just quickly flew through the meaning of each of those words, each of those words are perfectly displayed in Christ. They are. You can walk through the line and you can just take love and put Jesus in its place and everything that is said is true. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy, right? On and on we could go. That is what we're talking about here. We're not talking about trying to manufacture these things in our lives through our own strength, but leaning into the person of Jesus Christ to help us with these things. And, and the Thessalonian church, going back to 1 Thessalonians, they are obviously doing really well in this. I don't think we can assume they're doing perfectly in this, but they are doing well enough where Paul doesn't feel the need to spend spend a ton of his time working through this issue. That's not to say there's not things they need correction on because the rest of this uh, chapter and the rest of chapter five, Paul's giving them a lot of instructions on things where they aren't really where they should be. This isn't a perfect church in Thessalonica, but it's doing well in this and Paul is affirming that in them. He's not browbeating them, by saying, yeah, I know you're good at loving, but I'm just going to keep beating you over the head with this. He, he's going, no, this is something that you're doing really well. And I'm going to affirm that in you. So again, we, we have to assess our, ourselves in this and they're doing well or they were doing well when they, when they had this letter written to them. Maybe we're doing well, maybe we're not, but let's, let's take this as an opportunity to, to, to hear the word of the Lord and say, okay, whether we're doing well or not, let's continue to do this more and more. Let's keep growing in this. That's Paul's admonition to this church. So love is the driving force of the Christian life. That's what we're seeing. But there's another aspect of this as Paul's teaching this church to be countercultural, as he's teaching this church to work through their lives in a very hostile and hard place. Um, he also tells them to do something else. And it's verse 11 and 12. He says, and, so love one another, keep doing that. And also, he's saying, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. 
so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, there's a lot that we could maybe take and angles we could take on this, but I think the, the overarching issue that Paul's bringing out here is that this church and every church, I think, is called to a simple way of life. Simply living to love Jesus, love people, and help people love Jesus. So he, he lays out these things for them to do. And the first is to live quietly. And the second is to mind their own affairs, or some translations say to mind your own business. The Greek there is to, to mind your own, your own things, is, is, the, is the literal translation of that, to mind your own things, and then to work with your hands. So the, these three things we're, they're called to, to live a quiet life, to mind their own things, and to work with their hands. I think what's happening here is that Paul is encouraging this church to keep moving forward with their hand to the plow, right? To, to keep doing what they are called to do and not to become overwhelmed and distracted and flustered by all the things that are happening in their culture, in their world that they can't change. These people in Thessalonica cannot change the, the fact that the emperor of Rome is an egomaniac who just wants to, to uh, live you know, with everybody under his submission. They can't change that. They can't do everything to change the, the, even the city that they're living in. And so I think what Paul's doing is he's helping them to understand the, the avenue in which they need to live, which is to live a quiet life, to be simple-minded in the sense of, uh, of just doing what they're called to do, which is namely love, right? There's, there's a reason why love is th- at the beginning of this section because that's what it means to live a simple life. It's just to keep our hand to the plow and do what we're called to do, which is look at Jesus, keep doing what he's called us to do in loving others. And, and that is, I think, for many of us, what we need to hear as well. I think there's a couple things here that, that uh, we, we need to take to heart as a, as a church in the 21st century and in this time. Um, and I, think, I just want to give you a couple of thoughts on this. Um, one thing that makes our lives difficult to, to obey this and to do this is that we live in a, in a society and in a time where we have constant and immediate sources of information. So we're, we have in our pockets a supercomputer that can tell us what's happening everywhere as it's happening. And I think that that actually makes this really hard to, to do, to obey the word of the Lord in this and say, let's just live quiet lives. Let's just mind our own things. Let's, let's just work with our hands. Let's just do what we're called to do keep our hand to the plow, so to speak, because we're always inundated by everything that's happening all the time. And I, I think that, that we, we need to be more intentional in thinking through this, is that I think we're always at a, in a state of like heightened anxiety, you might want to call it, because something that's happening literally across the globe is in our pocket, we're being told about it as it's happening. 
and it may or may not affect our lives at all, and yet we're giving mental space to it, we're worrying about it, we're thinking about these things. And so I, here's, I want to have a balance in this because I, I don't think it's wrong for us to care about what's happening in other parts of the world. I don't want to sound calloused when I say this, but, but I do also want us to think about this. Does it really matter what's happening in Canada? You don't live there. I have friends that live there. And you know what? They're doing amazing. I just saw one at a con- saw a friend of mine named Murray at a conference who's pastoring a church and I was asking him about all the craziness, right? And I'm sure he's been asked that by a thousand people before that. And he just said, you know, you know what, Tom? We're just doing what we're called to do. Just keep, we just keep moving ahead. It doesn't matter. Like, so I, I, that encourages me. But do I need to fret about the things that are happening in a country I don't live in? Maybe to some degree, maybe not. We need to evaluate that stuff on, a, on an individual level. Again, I'm not trying to be callous in saying this, but does it matter right now to your life today what's happening in Ukraine? It's sad what's happening in Ukraine. It is. I don't want to see what's happening in Ukraine happen. But can we change that? I can't. I don't, I don't have the power or the position to do anything about that. So does, does me wringing my hands about these things really help anything? Again, these are just questions to be thought through. And I'm not saying this in a way to say we shouldn't have empathy for people who are suffering in other parts of the world. Of course we should. And, and we have the blessing of material wealth in this country that is unmatched in history. And if, if God so compels us to give towards the, the needs of others, of course we should do that. We see that in the Apostle Paul's day too, when the church in Judea was under such persecution that he was fundraising from churches like the Thessalonians and the Corinthians and saying, hey, let's get some money together to help these Christians in Judea because they are without jobs now because of persecution. There is something to be said for the global church coming together to help. But I, but I think we've almost imbalanced this thing to a point where we are now fretting about the, the tides of political change that really probably doesn't affect our lives right now as much as we think it does. And we feel like it does is because we're always seeing it. It's always in front of us. So again, this is not me dictating to you how you should live or how you should think about things. I'm just simply trying to help us think through what does it mean to live a quiet life, to mind our own affairs, and to work with our hands in the 21st century. Today, right here in Anago, what does that mean? And I think we, there's a couple things that that means. That's one. But the other thing I think uh, we need to think about is, um, is how we actually make decisions about what we do and where we go. And, and this can give a ton of people a ton of anxiety as well, that we're always f- afraid of making the wrong decision. And so what happens is we don't make decisions. We just find ourselves paralyzed. I think we're seeing this increasingly uh, among uh, Gen Zers in particular. Um, in, in our White Lake location, we've got a lot of uh, college students coming to that. And over the last couple of years, we've found ourselves in this weird like college ministry space, which we didn't really think we'd be in, uh, living in Anago and White Lake and all of that. But we're in, interacting with some of these students and they are just literally terrified of making decisions. Like literally terrified of it. And it's like, 
Okay, here, here's what you need to know. We're called to live a quiet life, to mind our own affairs, and to work with our hands. So what does that mean? It means that you fun- functionally just need to keep focused on what God has called you to do, love people, love him, love people, and help people love Jesus. And if you're doing anything that fits into that category, you're doing fine. You're doing fine. Pick something to do. If you can say, yes, this, this is not disloving Jesus, it's not disloving others, Dislove is not a word, but I'm using it. Uh, and it's not disloving uh, towards helping people love Jesus. Right? It's, it's, not, it's not detrimental to those things. If it's neutral or not, whatever, then go for it. Just make a decision. I think we have this weird view that if we go through the wrong door, like, like we see life as, okay, door number one, door number two, right? And, and if you pick the wrong one, you're going to end up with like, I don't know, the, you don't get the car, you end up with like, I don't know, the sheep or something, whatever's behind door number two. I don't know, what's, I don't know what kind of prizes they do anymore, but <laughs> a sheep, right? They just give you a sheep? No, I don't know. All right, but that's the thing, right? We, we're afraid if we go through the wrong door, we've just ruined our lives, and that's not true. God is telling us, God is sovereign, right? So you walk through door number two, and it's the wrong door in the moment, but guess what? God actually takes you through that door, and, and he brings you to where he wants you to be because God's in charge. We're not. So we need to be careful on thinking that um, our, our, primary, our primary responsibility is to make every right decision. No, our primary responsibility is to keep our head down, to live a quiet life, to do that thing that we know God has called us to do, which is to love. And then from there, we can just go. We can make decisions. The thing that is interesting to me is there's, a, there's an Old Testament story um, in Jeremiah 29. And Jeremiah 29 is the, the chapter that has the, probably one of the most famous verses in, in the Old Testament. I have a plan for you, not to harm you, but to prosper you. That, that thing we put on, we put on um, you know, coffee mugs. And, and you know that verse, though, comes at the, in the context of God telling his people that they are going to have 70 years of exile in Babylon. And he tells them in this letter, Jeremiah is told to write a letter to the people telling them that for 70 years, the people of Israel will be exiled from their land in a foreign nation and, and then tells them what to do within that. So there's a couple things to notice in this they were told specifically how long they were going to be gone. But every person reading that letter would be dead before they got out of it. If you were just a newborn, you would be 70 years old when this came to fruition. So if you were a young child and probably unaware of what's going on, like most young children are, you, you, you would live to be a very, very old man or woman before these things happen. But every adult in that nation would be gone but what were they told to do? Well, Jeremiah 29 tells us what they were told to do. And I think it's, it's important for us to hear this. This is what they were told to do. It starts in verse four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse five, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. 
Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray for the Lord on its behalf because its welfare uh, is your welfare. So what did God tell the people of Israel as they were going into exile? being taken from their land, being ripped from their home. He says, build your house, plant your garden, see your children get married and have children. In other words, plug away. Just plug away. You're here. That's where you are. And guess what, you guys? We are in exile. This isn't our home. Our home is in heaven. 1 Peter 1 tells us that we are sojourners and aliens in this world. Now, we haven't been physically displaced from our country like the Israelites before and like actually like the people that Peter was writing to. He was writing to a group of Jewish believers who were literally dispersed from their homeland and he's comforting them in that. We don't have that same experience right now, but listen, that doesn't matter because we're all exiles. This is not our home. But here's the good Good news, we are, as Christians, we are monarchists. We have a king, and we have a kingdom. The king's name is Jesus. We live with him and under his leadership. We follow him, and here's how he calls us to follow him. Build houses, plant gardens. Live live the life you're called to live where you are. Seek the welfare of the city in which you live, because its, its welfare is your welfare. If it does well, you do well. And I think that in the New Testament sense, that's what Paul's telling the Thessalonians. They're living in a terrible place, in a hard place, in a city that hates Jesus, and yet they're just told to keep plugging away. Settle in, plug away, and love people. There it is. Of course, we see this modeled for us in Jesus, right? Jesus lived for 30 years in total obscurity, He lived in a small town. He swung a hammer. He worked with his hands. And when he was 30 years old, he came out onto the scene to begin a three-year journey to the cross. And this man who lived a quiet, simple life in Nazareth of of Israel, he then went to a Roman cross and he died a criminal's death, but rose again and now is our king and ruling and reigning in the world. And this King Jesus invites us to this, come to me, come to me. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to come to Jesus, and as we do, to love him and love others and to help others love him and just live a simple, quiet life, minding our own things and working with our hands. That's as simple as it gets. We don't need anything complicated. We just need to do those things with love as the driving force. And in that, we will be countercultural. We will totally turn the world upside down as the church has always done by doing these things. All right, let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you have loved us so well, that you loved us enough to come to this earth, to live as a man, grow up in a small town, to work a job, but then you came 
ultimately to teach and heal and proclaim the gospel and then to live fully the gospel by dying and rising for us sinners. We pray that we would take your words to heart and that we would come to you, that we would respond to you today, that if there's course correction that needs to happen, that you would lead us in that, but that you would help us to stay focused on the main thing, and that is to love you and love others and to help others love you. Would you give us grace in these things? And we pray it in your name. Amen.